This week on the Backtable Podcast. You think back to 1977, we didn't even have a CT scanner. We only had an IVP. So we ended up doing a lot of explorations, which retrospectively, perhaps we didn't need to do, but we just didn't have the imaging to do it. And I was always one that felt like the final step in finding out the staging process of a traumatic injury was exploration. And so we ended up exploring a lot of kidneys early on until we got a CT scanner. And, you know, if you look in the literature, you see that the first CT scan trauma information was coming out of this hospital because we got a CT scanner in 1979. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Since I had my son, paying down my med school debt has become my top priority. I remember holding him in my arms for the first time, looking into his beautiful little face and just wanting the best future for him. With the Laurel Road Student Loan Cashback Card, my regular purchases earn me 2% cashback when I use it to pay down my student loans, which helps me reach my goals faster and plan for my family's future. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctor checking for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA member FDIC. Now, back to the show. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guests today. First, we have Jill Buckley from UC San Diego, who is a professor of urology and the director of the Reconstructive Fellowship, who is going to be hosting today. And I am thrilled to welcome Dr. Jack Mackinich, who really needs no introduction. He's a professor emeritus at the UC San Francisco. I could probably spend the entire 45 minutes introducing him and all his contributions to the field, but I think I'll leave it as, you know, really one of the giants in our field, the father of trauma and reconstructive urology. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Mackinich. How are you doing this morning? Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. So I am actually going to largely sit back and enjoy the show as Jill and Dr. Mackinich have a conversation. So, Jill, thank you for coming on, and I'm going to let you take it away. Aditya, thank you first for having us this morning. I'm really excited to get the opportunity to interview and talk to Dr. Mackinage and share his story with anyone that wants to listen to this wonderful man and legend in urology. Dr. Mackinage, let's just jump right in. I know you grew up in a small town in Merkel, Texas. That's a big change from living in San Francisco or sometimes in Martha's Vineyard. Tell me what it's like growing up there. Well, Merkel, Texas... It's this uh, small little farming ranching town due west of Dallas, about uh, 200 miles. Its population's about 2,000, and I might even include all the dogs. So uh, <laughs> it's a small place. Went to uh, high school there. All, all of my uh, education before I got to college was there. And... Uh, when I got to college, I realized I didn't really have any education. <laughs> it was uh, pretty poor. I didn't even get to take things like chemistry or uh, any science courses. So um, I, I was uh, poorly qualified when I got to college. 
I think you mentioned one time there was one stoplight in all of Merkel. Is that right? Or was it a stop sign? No, it was a stoplight. And uh, it was uh, quite an aggravation for most of the people who are traveling because they had to travel through this little town and stop at the stoplight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not all kids that you grew up with probably went on to college. How did you find your path that you knew you wanted to get out of Merkel and maybe attend college or do things beyond that little small town? Well, I think that was probably my family who uh, insisted or put in my mind that college was a very important part of my future because my father didn't even get a chance to finish high school. And my mother actually uh, went to two years of college. And uh, so yeah, I think she was probably very instrumental in sort of putting that in my uh, brain that I was going to go to college. And uh, the 57 people who graduated from high school with me, a day probably uh, seven or eight went to college out of the group. So very small group went off to college. And was it expected for you that you'd come back to Merkel after you went to college? Or did they know once you left that uh, you probably weren't coming back? Or what'd you think? I think everyone expected me to come back. And even to this day, when I, uh, I walk down the street of this little town, I see uh, people that I knew so many years ago, and they'll look at me and say, when are you coming home? <laughs> so uh, there's still that expectation that I'm going to show up, but uh, it's not going to happen. <laughs> not anytime soon. I remember you telling me one time that you used to work in the oil fields. Do I have that right? I did. You know, that's a far cry from being a, a surgeon. Was that one of the toughest jobs you had? Or, and if it wasn't one of your toughest jobs, what was one of the jobs that you thought was hardest growing up? Well, when I finished high school, I didn't really uh, have enough money to go to college. And uh, fortunately, I was able to get a job in the oil fields working as a roughneck. So I was 18 years old working as a roughneck in the oil fields. And I made a dollar and 52 cents an hour. In 1954, that was a lot of money. And we got uh, time and a half for overtime. So I worked seven days a week and I worked from three in the afternoon till 11 at night because these uh, drilling rigs run 24 hours a day. And so that was a evening shift. So when I got ready to go to college, I had saved up money all summer so I could, uh, would have enough to make it through school. And at Texas Tech, where I went to college, uh, the tuition was $25 for a semester. So that was uh, <laughs> affordable. <laughs> and was it a tough job? Could I have done it, you think? Oh, yes. Working in the oil field is a tough job. I mean, you work really hard. and But it was great for me because I, I would work the evening shift, so I couldn't go out in the evening, spend my money running around doing things. So I, I could I, strictly working seven days a week, and I worked all summer. So I I just pocketed all that money and it was up to buy my room and board and everything when I got to Texas Tech. Knowing you for a number of years now, that correlates to your work ethic. Like what you're like as a physician and a surgeon. Good training, I guess, for the future. Well, I would say so. I know you majored in animal husbandry at Texas Tech, the Red Raiders. Is that right? That's true. What I wanted to really know is, do you think they're the best football team in Texas or is there some other teams that you would say are better? Oh, no, good grief. They're not the best football team in Texas. <laughs> Did you ever play football? Oh, yeah. I played football 
all through high school. But my favorite sport was basketball and baseball. But I, I was a split end in football and uh, was a starting split, split end when I was a senior. And uh, in those days, I, I played a, on the defense as a linebacker. So I was a linebacker and I weighed all of 155 pounds. So it gives you some idea. <laughs> yeah, things have certainly changed now. Yeah, that's true. So you did major in animal husbandry, is that right? I did. I majored now. Okay. And then at some point, I remember you telling me how you had an opportunity to work with plastic surgeons and do research. Well, that's jumping a little bit ahead because uh, uh, while at Texas Tech, I actually decided that I really had to work hard to learn how to study. And um, in that process, I got interested in some additional I would say uh, additional studies. So I, I went off to Cornell between my junior and senior year at Texas Tech and uh, spent a summer doing research at Cornell and working with a group there. So I was interested in advanced studies. And I, so I uh, was able then to uh, apply to different institutions in the era of animal science to see if I could get an advanced degree and I was going to get a PhD in uh, animal husbandry, animal science. And uh, I ended up getting accepted for a fellowship at the University of Idaho. So after I graduated from Texas Tech, I went off to the University of Idaho, get a master's degree there in animal science. And it was there at the University of Idaho is where uh, my major professor asked me what my future plans were. And I said, well, I want to get a PhD in the field of animal nutrition, which is where I was interested in. So he said, well, we need to get you into some, uh, some of these uh, courses that will prepare you for that. So he put me in advanced organic chemistry, biochemistry, uh, comparative anatomy, uh, histology, these kinds of courses, embryology. And all these courses I was taking were very interesting to me, and, and I uh, really enjoyed them. But what I realized was that I was uh, in class with all of these pre-med students, and I was making better grades than they were. So it kind of gave me an idea that maybe I was uh, shorting myself a little bit, and uh, I began to think I might not want to change uh, cows the rest of my life. And so... Uh, I uh, began to think maybe I might change my career focus and, uh, and consider medical school since I enjoyed the science and I like working with people. And that was a disadvantage in animal husbandry or animal science because I'd just be working with cows and I wasn't sure I wanted to do that the rest of my life. So then I started applying to medical school. And uh, fortunately, I was accepted to medical school at the University of Texas in Galveston, the medical branch in Galveston. So that's where I ended up in uh, 1960. That was two years after graduating from Texas Tech and two years after I was at the University of Idaho, where I got my uh, master's degree and, and also uh, got all the coursework done for my uh, medical school. Well, that's great, Dr. Mackinich. So I, I think it's safe to say that for the urologic field and all your patients as, as a whole, it's quite uh, fortuitous that you switch from kind of a veterinary path to a more human-based option. 
so that took you back to Texas, maybe not back to Merkel. And now you've clearly identified that it's going to be medicine for you. And is it around this time that you had some interfacing with the plastic surgeons? Yes, that's true. Because uh, when I got to Galveston, I didn't really have any money. My family wasn't able to be uh, uh, supportive. And so consequently, I um, was able to uh, pay the tuition. With tuition in Galveston that time was uh, $375 for the year. So that was rather inexpensive for a medical school education. And so I was able then to start to look around to see if I had to, could get some additional support. So I checked around in the, in the medical center and the plastic surgeons had the most money, it seemed, because they had a lot of research going on. And so I went to the chief of plastic surgery, it was Truman Blocker. And Dr. Blocker, I uh, had an appointment with him as a freshman. And I, I can't believe I had the courage to go talk to him. But when I did and, uh, and spoke with him, well, I told him I, I didn't have any money. I needed a job. I had experience in research. And if he had any position, would he consider me? And before I left his office, he said, you're hired. So I went on the payroll, a plastic surgeon, uh, a trim and blockers payroll, all the way up until I finished uh, medical school. I worked for him for four years. And during that time, I got very interested in plastic surgery and uh, worked in the operating room with them a great deal before I ever uh, finished medical school. So Dr. McInnes, you've, you've finished medical school. You've got some influence from plastic surgeons. What was next in your career? I, I think you had a big component was the military. When did that happen? And tell me, tell me how you transitioned and what was going on then? Well, it, throughout this early part of my career and my life, money was always an issue because I didn't really have adequate funds to do very much. So when I finished medical school at Galveston, I didn't really have enough money to leave Galveston and I didn't want to stay there even though it was a wonderful medical school. And Dr. Blocker had expected me to be a plastic surgeon. And to be a plastic surgeon, at least in his program, I had to do four years of general surgery after my internship, and then three years of plastic surgery. And at that time, I was married and had a one-year-old child. And so I just told Dr. Blocker, I said, I, I can't do that, Dr. Blocker. It's just too much. So I just can't do plastic surgery because it's too demanding and I just don't have the funds to do it. So he said, well, why don't you become a urologist? That's a very good area. And if you did it in the military, you'd be really well uh, trained and skilled. And I began to think about that because the military would move me off Galveston Island. And so all that information and encouragement from him, well, I decided to join the military. So I joined the, the Army, and the Army moved me to uh, Letterman Army Hospital in San Francisco. So that's how I got to San Francisco. So you went into urology not knowing it because somebody suggested it, and the military, and they were all kind of just practical decisions? Yes. The urology department at Galveston almost non-existent, uh, the, the, so I had no experience in urology, but I knew enough about it that I thought, gee, this this could really be an interesting area 
and uh, that there would be uh, very little nighttime work, which was a misnomer now. <laughs> but uh, I, I, I thought it would be uh, perhaps a good specialty, and, and it was surgical-oriented. So I was very happy about uh, deciding on urology. And when I got to Letterman in San Francisco, we did rotating internships. So everyone did exactly the same internship. We did a rotating internship. And so what year did you join the military and how long were you there? And I know sometime, part of the time you were in Germany, weren't you? It's part of your career. Well, the, 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 what happened was I graduated medical school in uh, June of 1964. Started the internship the 1st of July, 1964. Did a year of internship there at Letterman in San Francisco. And they accepted me for the urology residency, which was an additional four years of training to start right away. And so I, uh, uh, in 1965, I was sent to do a year of general surgery at Fort Hood, Texas. So I went back to Texas to do a year of general surgery. And that was a wonderful year because that year of general surgery, uh, I uh, scrubbed with uh, board certified or board qualified uh, general surgeons the whole time I was there. And they, they were either my first assistant or I was their first assistant. So it was a very good, uh, a very good year. I learned an awful lot. Then I came back to Letterman in the summer of 1966 and uh, started the urology program, which was three years of clinical work finishing in 1969. Yeah. And then were you eventually, where did you go to Germany? Was I right about that? Yes, you were correct. Cause I uh, finished my uh, residency in 1969. And at that time, even though the Vietnam war was going on and, and we were loaded with Vietnam veterans and injuries and so forth at Letterman. We had 1,800 patients in the hospital there during my residency. 1,800? 1,800 patients were uh, uh, in the hospital at Letterman. So we were overwhelmed with work. It was very sad to be uh, seeing all of these injured soldiers coming back and taking care of them. But it was Stimulating in a way for education because I learned an awful lot about uh, acute care medicine, uh, acute care urology, about reconstructive surgery. So from a learning standpoint, it was a wonderful experience, but a very sad experience from the standpoint of a, a war in Vietnam. That was so terrible. So anyway, I finished the residency in 1969 and I was sent to Germany uh, for three years. And uh, with my family, he went with me. That must have been an amazing experience. And then a difficult, obviously very difficult, but for all the work you were doing there. And then, then you came back. Did you move back to the Presidio when you came back from Germany? I uh, finished my training, in, or not my training, but my time in Germany, which there I was just working as a full-time urologist, taking care of everything that uh, was coming in from pediatrics to female to adult male urology. So we had a busy practice in Germany. And then when I came back, I came back to Fort Ord, California. At Fort Ord, I was only there one year before I was asked to come back to Letterman to be on the faculty at Letterman. So then I came back to Presidio, San Francisco after just one year at Fort Ord. 
Yeah, I remember walking through the Presidio and looking at the old military housing. What a great place to be stationed. Beautiful views of the city, the bridge, and just a beautiful city to be a part of. I know it's uh, that you're pretty fond of that area. Oh, yeah. The Presidio, uh, I I drive on. I was over in the Presidio yesterday, as a matter of fact. For what reason, I don't remember. But (laughs) It's gorgeous. Yeah, we go there often. And then tell me, how did you get connected with Dr. Tanago, Dr. Emil Tanago? How did you guys hook up? Because I know he eventually recruited you at UCSF. Yes. Well, I was started on the faculty at Letterman in 1973. So I was a very junior person, only three years, four years out of residency to be coming back to be a faculty member. And fortunately, uh, uh, we had arrangements in the training program to have consultants come once a month. And so Dr. Tanago was one of those consultants who would come once a month and spend two hours with us uh, and the trainees at Letterman. So the faculty and the trainees were always involved with the consultant. So there were like five of us. So during that time, you'd really got to know the consultant well, and the consultant got to know each of us rather well. And in addition, we had Dr. Stamey coming from Stanford and Dr. Duncan Govan from Stanford coming. So we had two Stanford professors and Dr. Tago, the professor at UCSF, would come. And in addition, we'd go to the Grand Rounds at UCSF every Saturday morning. And we also presented our uh, M&Ms there. So it was always a lot of discussion that went on in between the so you had a connection with Dr. Chinago, and then how did the, the relationship foster that he recruited you to be part of his faculty? Well, Dr. Chinago did not become the chair at UCSF until 1977, and that's when Dr. Don Smith retired, and Dr. Chinago became the first full-time chairman at UCSF, a full-time professor. So he was the very first one. Everyone else had been a clinical professor who did have their own private practice, but that was not true of Dr. Tanago. And so in his agreement to become a full-time chair, he could hire people to build his department as full-time people. And uh, so he was looking for someone to cover and be a full-time person at San Francisco General. And at that time, San Francisco General was a hospital that had only UCSF faculty working full-time there. So he asked me if I'd be interested in that position, and I certainly was. And so that's what prompted me to get out of the Army and accept the position as a full-time person at San Francisco General. And so that, that's how I ended up at San Francisco General. Yeah. Now, Dr. Chinago, was he the kind of guy you could say no to? You know, I only knew him when I was a resident, he was sort of at the end of his career and he was a big teddy bear. What was he like when he was starting that to work for him in the mid 70s and late 70s? Well, you have to recognize that Dr. Tanago uh, grew up in a totally different kind of, of arena as far as academic medicine was concerned in Egypt because the chief was the person who controlled everything and whatever the chief said went. So there's usually no discussion, and that was pretty much true, I think, of Dr. Tanago. But uh, he, uh, 
he was very kind and encouraging and very, very supportive because he realized that I was going to be at a place working by myself, basically, and with 10 full-time general surgeons whose focus was on trauma. And uh, so working there in that atmosphere, and I was very interested in the trauma because of my experience from the Vietnam returnees back in, uh, in training. And so I, I had to work my way into the trauma setting and become part of the trauma team. And, and the, he knew that was not going to be easy and it wasn't easy. So, uh, he, he was very, very supportive of me. Yeah. So Dr. Mack, let's think what year, roughly what year did you start at San Francisco general and what, what year did you finish? How many years were you there? Would you say? Started 1977 in September. And uh, I retired in uh, 2013. Wow, amazing. Amazing. I, <laughs> I know the general was a big part of your career. And one of the things that always impressed upon me were two big things. You had this great relationships with the general surgeons, which we can, maybe I can ask you about in a little bit here, but you also created a great team of people that were super loyal to you, the, like Sheila and the OR and JoJo and... Melissa and Layla, and you had these people that were loyal. How did you build this amazing atmosphere that people just wanted to stay and be a part of your team at, at the general? Well, I don't know exactly how that kind of thing happens, but I always treated people with respect and felt like that I didn't need to uh, demand things from them, that they had a job to do, and I expected them to do the job, and I didn't have to say a lot about it to them and what I wanted. I could just give guidance. So hopefully that's what built a group that wanted to stay and work and be part of the group. So we, I had long-term employees, and I was awfully uh, pleased to have them. Yeah, which really speaks a lot to how you treated people. And it's something that really impressed upon me and I think many of the people that you trained. When you're talking about the general surgeon, you clearly had garnered the respect of the trauma surgeons and the general surgeons. And it's really unique, Dr. Mack, and it's not like many places in the country. How did you have that vision that you were going to come in and kind of join them but carve out urologic trauma? Well, I, first of all, I was very interested in it. And I remember when I was interviewing to take the job, Dr. Tanago had set it up for me to interview Dr. Blaisdell over at San Francisco General, since I was going to work at the General. And Blaisdell was internationally known trauma surgeon, and he was also internationally known as one tough guy. So I go into Blaisdell's office, and see, he was just a wonderful guy, but he was no-nonsense person. So the first thing he asked me, and uh, if I was interested in trauma, I said, yes. And he said, well, why do you think you can do trauma here? I said, well, number one, I'm interested and I'm, I've been well-trained and I'll be here to do it every time there's a trauma. And he said, where do you live? I said, I live in Mill Valley. He said, will you come for every trauma that I call you for? And I said, yes, I will. He said, even at two in the morning? And I said, yes, I'll be here. He said, okay, if you'll come for every trauma, then I'll be supportive of you. And so I agreed with that. And I was tickled after I talked to him. And so then when I was hired, I, I would, 
went back into Dr. Blaisdell's office and he said, now we've, we've agreed you're going to come for every trauma. And I said, yes, I'm going to come for every trauma. But if your general surgeons do a urologic procedure, I'm going to be in your office the next day complaining. And he said, that's a deal. And so it probably two or three weeks went by and Don Trunke, who was one of the prominent trauma surgeons here, took a kidney out or did something and he didn't call me. And uh, so I was in Blaisdell's office the next morning. I said, Trunke took out a kidney last night. I was not called for this traumatic injury. And Blaisdell said to me, don't worry, I'll take care of it. Never happened again. They always called me. All the trauma surgeons called me. And as I got a chance to work with them in the middle of the night and all times, then I became just a member of their team. They always called and they always knew I was going to come. And uh, I was always there with the residents. And so our residents learned, their residents learned, and I learned. So it was a really uh, terrific opportunity. And I enjoyed doing that. No, it sounds like it. And sounds like he trusted you and you, you went right in and said, Hey, this is, this is our domain. And he backed you up. And then from then on, it was sort of smooth sailing. Would you say? I would say that it was. The thing about it is they looked at me as a general surgeon who did urology. That's really the way they looked at me um, and considered me. And there'd be times when we'd get overwhelmed with trauma and they would call me to do general surgical kinds of trauma things. And uh, so it was really a mutual kind of respect for the general surgeons and myself. And I had great respect for them. So it was just, it was wonderful relationship. Yeah. I love the way you phrase that, Dr. Mackage. They viewed you as a surgeon first and did urology. And that's really how you had built your career right? With all your experience in the military and the trauma and now coming working side by side with them. Well, I can say for all of us that were, I trained under you, as you recall, as a resident and as a fellow. And by the time we came through, nobody crossed that line. If there was any urologic trauma, we were always called. So clearly you had the respect and that collegiality ran deep. Now from that relationship and your extensive experience in trauma, you're kind of known as the father of urologic trauma. Were there any real pivotal moments in your national and international career? Did you feel like renal trauma or bladder trauma was a major aspect? Like you've had so much experience. What were some highlights of doing trauma in your career and writing about it? Well, just in the, uh, from the trauma standpoint, the, I guess the traumatic injuries that were most challenging and the most interesting was the kidney injuries. You got to think back to 1977, we didn't even have a CT scanner. We only had an IVP. So we ended up doing a lot of explorations, which retrospectively, perhaps we didn't need to do, but we just didn't have the imaging to do it. And I was always one that felt like the final step in finding out the staging process of a traumatic injury was exploration. And so we ended up exploring a lot of kidneys early on until we got a CT scanner. And, you know, if you look in the literature, you see that the first CT scan trauma information was coming out of this hospital. Because we got a CT scanner in 1979 and we started using it. And uh, that began to change what we did. 
and helped us stage these injuries much, much better as time went on. And the kidney injuries themselves, knowing how to do the exploration, um, I had a way of doing it uh, where I always got vascular control very early before we ever explored the kidney. We had control of the vascular system. We cut the renal loss, the kidney loss here, San Francisco General, we cut it down to a low percentage, whereas otherwise, before I got here, it was 50, 50 percent of the time, if the, if the kidney was explored, it came out. Uh, it was taken out by the general surgeons, and we were down to probably 10 percent or less of the ones we explored, and we became much more conservative, actually, in exploration than the trauma surgeons were. No doubt about it, Dr. McNish, how you identify the vessels early, how you taught all of us that trained under you to do that. And the fact that we're urologists that had familiarity with the kidney completely changed the management of renal trauma. So what a huge, huge, huge contribution. Really something amazing. Well, Luke, I think it's, I think it's a lot of fun to learn how to isolate the major renal vessels in a central location and take care of these vascular injuries. Uh, and for training purposes, it's, it's wonderful. And, uh, it gives you, like you yourself, you're comfortable exploring uh, uh, the aorta, knowing what's there and how to get to the renal vessels and manage those things. That's, that's such valuable information to have. No, I definitely feel that way. Do you feel like, even though it's better for the patients, it's certainly a loss for sort of the trainees not getting that exposure of exploring these kidneys and the, and the retroperitoneum. What do you think? Yes, there's no doubt about that from the standpoint of training, it's a loss, but the patient does gain. I would say that, uh, however, back in the 80s, and we were doing more exploration certainly than we are now, that we were able to cut the morbidity of renal injuries dramatically by exploring them early and, and doing a reconstructive procedure because they would be in the hospital for much less time and the worries of uh, extravasation and uh, infection in the retroperitoneum were greatly reduced because of that. Yeah. You know, now kind of transitioning, you did a ton of work in trauma and you're clearly, you know, that's a big part of your career and one of the things you're known for. And then you always have always done a lot of reconstructive surgery that seemed to publish more of that later in your career. Who were some of your key mentors in the reconstructive realm? Sounds like trauma you kind of did on your own. Kind of, you know, you were the father of it. What about reconstruction? Do you have any mentors that really influenced you? Tell you the honest truth, no. You know, I, I was interested in the reconstructive things primarily from my experience with plastic surgeons. So I think maybe I just got the principles down really well because of my experience there. And then having experience in caring for the uh, injured coming back from Vietnam was a great benefit in my training. And so the faculty at Letterman were all very helpful and in guidance of, of reconstructing things. But they didn't, uh, there wasn't anybody in my career who was fellowship trained in reconstructive surgery. And I myself was not trained in reconstructive surgery per se by fellowship training. So this is just something that was a natural after trauma to reconstruct things. 
So we did a lot of genital reconstructions, and then it became an issue of stricture disease. And using the principles of reconstruction, that's how I just got into doing stricture disease. You know, I, I think you did an amazing job of marrying trauma to reconstruction, even the title of your fellowship, Trauma and Reconstructive Urology. And I think back to myself, would I have been able to put those two together? I'm not sure I would. So, you know, self-taught, thinking about how things just naturally fit together. That's how you kind of created this whole field and fellowship. What do you think, Dr. Mack? Is that true? Yes. It, it, the, the whole basis of trauma, in my view, was always reconstructing the traumatic injuries. And it was just, you didn't want to lose an organ or lose function. And so the most important thing was reconstruction. And so that just carries over to uh, uh, reconstructive surgery in general. It just wasn't any different to me. They were all related. They were all the same. Yeah. And Dr. Mack, I know you taught residents for years. And then at some point, you just decided to create a fellowship. But there were just a couple. You were one of just a few. What, what made you decide to train someone for an additional year in what you loved, trauma and reconstruction? Well, it's just the fact is that we had, we had lots, lots is not the right word. We had a great number of traumatic injuries. We, at that, by that time in my career, which I'd been 13 years or so without a fellow, without any other faculty, just me here in San Francisco General, we were at a point where we were ready to add to the training program and a fellow made sense. There would be something new to open up for people across the country if they were interested in trauma and wanted to do reconstructive surgery. So we could do not only the reconstructive surgery, but deal with the trauma and learn how to do acute care reconstructive surgery here. And so I decided to open the fellowship, and Dr. Tanago was very supportive of that. He was very supportive of that. So the first fellow came in 1989, that was Christopher Dixon, and he was recruited out of Wayne State University, where I was a visiting professor that spring, and uh, Chris was interested, and so I said, come to a fellowship and let's see how it goes. And so we had a great year, we had a good time, and that was a wonderful launch for the uh, fellowships. It never turned back. You trained like... In the 20s, 20, 25 fellows, how many do you remember, roughly? Somewhere in there. About 25 fellows. Others are there's about 25 fellows. You know, another real key aspect when I think about your career was there was a group of you that started GERS, the General Urinary Reconstructive Society. And, you know, tell me what that was like. I remember you telling stories how when you guys first met, there was like 12 or 14 of you in the audience. And now it's a huge society that's grown to hundreds and is international. Tell me the original few of you and where you guys originally met. Uh, yeah, the Genital Reconstructive uh, Urologic Society was actually founded, as I recall, it is 1989. And Charles Devine, Dr. Devine from uh, Eastern Virginia was the, the real person who insisted that this would be a viable organization. So he pulled together a group of people that he thought would be founding people who would support it. And I happened to be one of those people. 
but there was Dr. Devine and uh, Dr. Charles Harden, who was a plastic surgeon, because it, the vision was that plastic surgeons, urologists, um, gynecologists uh, would all be included in this group. So there would be a wide range of uh, specialties that would be included and, and, and would be international. So there'd be people from around the world that would be included. And we met, and oh, I should say, uh, pediatric neurologists were also included in this group. So there, there's, there's quite a group that he, he envisioned getting going. And the first meetings we had were at the uh, uh, American College of Surgeons. That's where the, the original meetings were held. And uh, we had urologists, plastic surgeons, gynecologists, pediatric urologists, all involved in presenting papers. But as time went on, we decided to meet at the AUA, and then the plastic surgeons kind of dropped out, and, and gynecologists kind of dropped out. So it's really turned out to be a urologic uh, group. And it's grown quite big. Wasn't it real small at first? And now sometimes we look at the room, and there's 600 800 people must be proud of all that. Oh yeah. And if we had 50 people in the initial meeting, we considered it a big group. So a big success. <laughs> yeah. It has grown. Yeah. You know, speaking of all the different things, you know, when you look at your, your CV and having been around you for years, you know, you pretty much had every title or big leadership role in urology, president of the AUA, president of GERS. Honorary member of the Royal College of Surgeons. Any of those roles really stand out to you that you particularly enjoyed those big leadership roles in urology? Well, I would say yes, there were there are two that were really important to me. One was uh, president of the American Board of Urology and uh, president of the AUA. Those were big roles. I was always interested in the side of medicine that dealt with the uh socioeconomic aspects of medicine and organized medicine like the AUA was uh, very important because if you didn't get involved in something like the AUA or that type of organization, you couldn't make a difference unless you got involved. And that's one reason I got involved. One reason I got involved heavily in the American College of Surgeons, uh, because I felt urology needed to be represented there, represented well. So I got heavily involved in that organization as well. Yeah. And from the academic standpoint, well, the American Board of Urology was clearly the most important academic, deeply academic organization that I could have been involved in. So that was, those are all big, important groups to me. And then I know you flew pretty much to every state as a visiting professor and internationally as well. Any trips that you just you know, stand out that were really fun. Just you think back when you were a visiting professor, just big memories. Oh, uh, I'll tell you, being a visiting professor was always exciting to me. It was exciting to meet all the uh, trainees. And, uh, you know, most of the time when I was there to give talks, they hadn't heard talks like uh, the kind of things I was presenting. So th they were all very interested. And so that was very encouraging just to have people you know, showing so much interest. And one thing I always did, and you know this, that I always kept a camera in the operating room and uh, I photographed 
everything that we did. And so there's no words you can say that are better than a photograph. That's very well done. It not only shows exactly what you're doing, but it, it can show the outcome as well. And by taking good photographs and showing them like Ed, as a visiting professor, you can uh, show the stepwise uh, process and the reconstructive procedure that's much better understood than words can ever put it together. So to me, that was one of the most important things that I had in education was a good camera. I still think I have one or two of the photographs that you took because they were just perfect to demonstrate something that you you lent out to me to use. I definitely, definitely agree. You know, Dr. Mack, when you think back on urology, it's changed so much since you've entered. One of the big things, just when they let women into urology, was that a big thing? Did you think that was a good thing? Was that a big thing for all everybody else to adjust to? Or what did you think about the infusion of, of women in urology? Well, you know, I never really thought that there was any uh, difference it just never entered my mind that uh, women were not part of urology because, you know, it's the individual that makes a difference as far as I was concerned. And so it was never, you know, I think maybe the very first resident we had in urology was uh, Sharon Me at UCSF. And Sherry's old enough, she's retired now. So, <laughs> but after that, we'll, you know, we, we almost had a, a woman in, in our training program every year. And now half of the trainees are, are women that are in urology here at UCSF. So it's fantastic, actually. It's a big paradigm shift. And, you know, I can tell you for myself, I think I, I think I was your first female that was one of your fellows. Is that right? That's correct. You were the first female fellow that I had. That's right. Yeah. And I was grateful that you were willing to, you know, take it. I don't want to say a risk, but be open-minded enough to train the generation. So for all of us that have that opportunity, it was a big decision for me to do that and was probably the best career decision I ever made. So thanks for that, for being open to that. I was going to ask you a couple other things as you've seen urology change. Is there anything that stands out like laparoscopy or endoscopic stone surgery or how we handle pediatric patients? You've really seen the field of urology now looking back for 50 years and how it's changed. Anything when you think about, you're like, wow, that's just a, was a huge change for all of us in the field. Maybe it was starting to do radical prostatectomies more. Anything stand out? I just give a lot of credit to urologists for their intuitive skills because that's the way you make progress. And then think back in the early 80s where the first time percutaneous kidney surgery was done to punch into a kidney uh, from the skin and realize that we didn't have good ultrasound or good imaging to do that kind of thing, but yet we're able to do it and started doing the uh, percutaneous work. And then that led uh, to laparoscopy and the laparoscopy has progressed by the early 90s and we were starting to do laparoscopic things First description of laparoscopic kidney uh, uh, nephrectomy was done early nineties. So I'm just so supportive of that kind of mental invasive work. And uh, now we've got robots, and the robots are just moving, and everybody's learned how to do robotic surgery. So I mean, it's amazing. It's just amazing. You know, I can't. I probably do uh, 
10% of what I did when I was a resident. <laughs> now, the things are so different. And now, look at, we're doing ureteroscopy. I mean, we never had a ureteroscope until 25 years ago, perhaps. I can't remember when, but it's amazing uh, what's, what's happened and uh, how we've advanced. Yeah, I remember... Dr. Rackers, there was one time we did a laparoscopic nephrectomy together, and you hadn't done much laparoscopy. Do you remember that experience? Yes, I remember it very well. You were my coach. I was uh, your coach. And I was doing this. <laughs> and I was very stressed because here I am, you know, you're were my you? mentor. And you did, you were amazing. Just, you know, you took your principles and you did it laparoscopic. But, you know, as you're as your trainee and your fellow was a bit intimidating to be telling you what to do. Don't do this. Don't do that. But you did a, you did a great job. What, that was a pretty fun experience though, right? It was a wonderful experience. I wasn't even nervous about doing it. You know, your first laparoscopic case of any kind, that's the first time I did any laparoscopic case myself. And you were there guiding me to do it. And I was very comfortable with all that. I didn't realize that you were nervous about it. <laughs> well, it was more that, you know, me telling you what to do. That was a, that was a change in our, our relationship at that point. It was like yesterday. Do you think future doctors will look back at what we're doing and think, man, those guys were barbaric. You know, I think they're going to sometimes say that about some of our reconstructive techniques, how we take these huge swaths of tissue out of the mouth. Do you ever think about that? All these patients you've treated for years? Oh, no, I don't think that. I think that at all, Jill. I think they will think those guys had a lot of courage and they had a lot of skill to be able to do things like that. And if you look back through the history of surgery, it's exactly the same way when I read about what they were having to do during the Civil War and how they had to take care of people. I think. Those guys were skilled, and those guys had a lot of courage, the physicians did, doing what they had to do. And uh, I think they'll feel the same way about us. <laughs> well, I hope so. You're probably right. So, Dr. McIntosh, what case did you most like doing in urology, and which case did you le least like doing? Do you have any favorites? I think, really, honestly, the, my favorite cases that I really enjoyed doing, and found the most challenging were the, the renal trauma cases. And the reason was that you'd get called and you knew there was a renal injury, but you didn't have any idea what you were going to find. And so when you got there and you started the process of getting to this injury, you still didn't know what you were going to find until there it was. And then you had to make decisions quickly rapidly and effectively. And uh, I found that challenging and a lot of fun. And then after you've done many, many of those, then you begin to realize that your decisions was what really made the outcomes positive. The outcomes were so good that we uh, just, it was just really a lot of fun to do those and see uh, uh, great outcomes and uh, patients recover and it's just uh, really rewarding. Uh, so the renal trauma was probably the most challenging, interesting cases that I did. Now, when you go to reconstructive stuff, like genital reconstructive things, it, honestly, you can't get into more challenging stuff than that. That's very challenging work. 
rectourethral fistulas, uh, those kinds of things. Just, you know, then radiation comes in and adds to that, makes it more complicated. And uh, so it's just uh, some of those are massive reconstructive uh, challenges. And But I couldn't say that what was the uh, things I disliked doing the most. Uh, they're, they're, most of it's probably related to radiation injury. Those are the ones that I, uh, I really dislike doing because the outcome was just so questionable every time you did it. You just never knew for sure it was going to be a good outcome. And, and I didn't like that because I, I knew in spite of what I did, I might lose. <laughs> and that, 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 that stuff. Yeah. I remember at the end of cases, when, at the end of cases, when we were wrapping up, you would say, all right, team, we're not in Dallas anymore. Where, where did that saying come from? <laughs> well, when I worked in the oil field, and that was what we were talking about. After I finished high school, and I was working in the oil field every summer, but in college, too. We'd be out in 105-degree temperature working uh, hard, and when we'd sit down in the shade of the tree, well, my co-worker and I would say, it's just like being in Dallas. <laughs> Because we consider Dallas some special place, you see. <laughs> Got it. And so that, that's where, uh, you know, it's just like being in Dallas. Was, um, it means that you've reached the best spot you can be in. <laughs> Got it. Got it. Yeah. So just maybe just one, one last question. You know, when you think about it, back on your career, how you did things, would you work harder, work less, or do you think you got it just about right? Because clearly you've had just an amazing career full of so many highlights, national trips, international trips, friendships, kind of unbeatable. What do you think, Dr. Mack? I, I never think too much about the amount of work I, uh, I, I did, but, uh, you know, you, you, you do as much work as you have to do or you need to do. And I guess for me, the most important thing is the work you do is quality. All of it's got to be good quality or don't do it. And uh, so that was clinical work as well as the other work. And uh, so it, it, it takes a lot of effort, but I couldn't be more pleased for the outcome for me. And I've done just exactly what I wanted to do and, and accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. And so I'm, I feel very, very fortunate and blessed to be uh, where I am right now. And I'm still working, so I'm happy. I think one of the beauties of it all is it wasn't planned. You just kind of went with things and you put your best foot forward and things really worked out. Yes, you know, that's true. Things just worked out. And, and that, that's the way it'll be with everyone's career. You start out and you, you, you take advantage of whatever opens up for you. And if you really take advantage of it, it's like you. You're, you're taking advantage of using the robot. Here you are. But. The principles are just the same as you learned here at UCSF. That's right. Dr. Mackinich, you would have loved doing more on the robot. No doubt about it. I would have. Yes, I know I would have. I, I had to gone after that right away. <laughs> well, listen, I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for taking the time to spend with us on Bactable Urology. And, I, you know, I'll speak for all of the people that you've trained over the years, the residents, the fellows, the faculty you've mentored, the friendships you've made. I mean, I think, you know, you're one of these people that just impacts people and you leave an imprint. 
And I think if we're, you know, have just 10% of the kind of human being that you are, and we can transfer that to the next generation of trainees and colleagues, then, uh, you know, it'll be really special. So you're a special guy, Dr. Max. We're so grateful that you're part of urology and you're, you know, I'll speak for myself, part of my life. And so it's been really amazing to talk to you today and record this. Thank you so much, Jill. Probably the, the most important group that exist to me are uh, my former fellows. You're one of those. And uh, the fellows are what carries on my legacy. So um, I, I so appreciate what they are, what they've done, and uh, all the accomplishments that they've done. They're, they're leading the world in the, in, in the field of reconstructive uh, urology. So I'm so proud of all that. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a lot of fun this morning talking about all this. All right. Thanks, Dr. Rackenich. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Ishan Sangwan and Medavi Patwardhan. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.